I am extremely excited to announce the next Regenerate Decentralized Health Summit is happening on August the 3rd and 4th in Albury, New South Wales. This conference brings together Australian and world experts on the themes of this podcast in a live format allowing you to learn, connect, and participate. For the first time ever, we are hosting a two-day event. Day one is all about decentralization of the food system, of farming, and of health, featuring Dr. Pran Yoganathan, Melanie Jackson of the Great Birth Rebellion, Cindy O'Meara of the Nutrition Academy, Regenerative Farmers, Jake Walkie, and David Bushell. Day two is all about light and health and is the most comprehensive day of talks on practical applications of circadian and quantum biology ever held in Australia. Featuring EMF expert Tristan Scott from the USA, quantum practitioner Kira Lee, light expert and Ricky Flow nutrition podcast host Cameron Borg, as well as yours truly. Stuart McWilliam will also be taking us through natural sequence farming, and there will be speakers panel discussions on both days. For those intending in person, there will be barbecued meats by Walkie Farm and Discovered Wild Foods. The golden ticket is a VIP pass, giving you access to both summit days, full catering, and a welcome dinner, as well as buses to and from the venue, and a whole lot more. For those interstate or international, a live stream pass is available for purchase that gives you live access to all 13 sum- sessions of the summit. You can get your tickets to Regenerate Aubrey now at the website, regenerateoz.com. Links are in the description. There are a strictly limited number of live tickets, so secure yours now so you don't miss out. Are you still buying your meat from the supermarket? If so, you simply don't know what you're getting. Was the animal treated ethically? Was it fed contaminated grain? Was it chemically treated just before processing? If you care about your health and that of the animal, you'll want to know the answers to these questions. Thankfully, buying directly from the farmer solves for all these problems. Jake and Anne Walkie run Walkie Farms, a regenerative operation in Albury, New South Wales, raising beef, lamb, pastured pork, and eggs to the highest standards of animal welfare, land stewardship, and chemical-free practice. I am excited to partner with Walkie Farm to offer you 10% off the entire Walkie range, from delicious steaks to sausages, lamb rocks, racks, and even lard and tallow to replace your seed oils. All orders are packaged and shipped frozen to your door all around Australia. If you have a local farm, by all means, source from them. But if you lack easy access to regenerative produce, then Walkie Farms have you covered. Use code DRMAX at the checkout. That's D-R-M-A-X for 10% off. Circadian health is a bedrock of optimal health. No matter your exercise routine or how clean your diet, if you disrespect your light environment, you will get sick. Cancer, diabetes, obesity, mental health disorders, autoimmune disease, thyroid problems are just some of the issues that can either be worsened or fixed with circadian choices. My 30-day circadian reset is a guided program to help you learn the basics of circadian health. For 30 days, we focus strictly on on things like seeing every sunrise, spending as much time grounded as possible, taking sun breaks throughout the day, and blocking blue light and artificial light at night. When you join up, you'll get access to four hours of lessons on how to make key circadian changes, as well as weekly live Q&As. If this is something that you're interested in, then join up today because we start on June the 1st. And if you need some basic equipment, including blue lip blocking glasses and circadian-friendly lighting, then use my code DRMAX on bondcharge.com to grab all of these products. Now, onto the show. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Regenerative Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Max Golhane, and today I'm talking to Dr. Jackie Montefiore. She's a general practitioner and a meta- metabolic health doctor who has an interesting background, having previously trained in nutrition and dietetics. So, Jackie, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, Max. Happy to be here. Great. Can we please start with a bit about your background and particularly? your training first as a dietitian before you you came into medicine? 
Yeah, sure. So my undergraduate degree was in nutrition and dietetics. So that was a four-year degree. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do uh, coming out of school. Had an interest in physiology and kind of medical side of things. But um, so found myself in nutrition and dietetics. And uh, so it's quite a quite a comprehensive degree um, and following that worked in that area for a number of years, about five years, I think, before uh, deciding to go back to uni and study medicine post-grad. But um, it was interesting, some of the roles I had as a dietitian were involved in weight management um, amongst other things. And it's really quite interesting. I'm sure we'll get to this, um, of how my thoughts have changed about body weight regulation and, and how we can manage it. So it was definitely a very handy degree, degree to have before, um, doing medicine and, um, not, not least at all for the, you know, the, the practical aspects of being able to, you know, talk to patients, counseling patients, um, a bit of familiarity with the hospital type of system. So that was all very, uh, useful then going in and, and studying medicine and subsequently becoming a GP. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting now to look back on some of the material we covered in um, what was largely the medical nutrition therapy and uh, where that came from and, and the consequences we now know of that um, stuff that we were taught, which I think, by the way, is, is still being taught to dietitian students even to this day. Yeah, and you're obviously a low-carb practitioner, meaning that you're helping to reverse your patient's metabolic diseases, specifically with whole foods, real foods, uh, low-carb nutrition. Can you explain how or what you were taught initially in dietetic school and maybe a bit in medical school as well, and how does that differ to what you're um, guiding and uh, your patients through currently? Yeah, well, the second part, uh, of your question is pretty easy in that we were taught essentially nothing in medical school, uh, so so no instruction on nutrition at all. I've heard some people say that their medical degree, they had half um, a day on nutrition. No, we didn't even have that. <laughs> so um, so that one's easy. And then obviously it didn't bother me too much because I'd had a, a background, or a four-year degree in nutrition and dietetics, but um, I'm sure a lot of my student colleagues were probably worse the wear for that. Um, but my, uh, my, my, di- my dietitian training was obviously quite, you know, guidelines based, um, conventional based, um, geared towards the, uh, well, the food plate, or some people might be more familiar with the food pyramid, um, as really, you know, the, 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 the cornerstone of our advice of, of what we should um, counsel people when we're giving them nutrition counselling. And um, that was back in the late 90s and early 2000s I was studying. So that was really pretty much the peak of the time that um, lots of carbs were recommended at their base of the pyramid or the large proportion of the food plate. Um, and so that's very much what we were schooled in is that those were an essential part of, of everyone's diet. Um, it was kind of um, sort of sold to us, I guess, that um, those foods were quite nutritious and we needed the fibre and we needed some of the B vitamins in them. Um, as part of, you know, the other food groups we were taught about, but um, certainly with regards to fats and and um, uh, saturated fat in particular, that was very much uh, frowned upon, uh, you know, to, to try and minimise it as much as possible. We're always taught that the person's intake should be less than 10% saturated fat um, uh, and their overall diet should be no more than 30% total fat. Um, and, yes, very much taught to us that any increase in your intake of saturated fat is going to increase your blood cholesterol and therefore increase your risk of heart disease. And with heart disease being a major cause of uh, death and disability to adults in Australia, you know, this was very much the cornerstone of what we were taught in um, nutrition school. Yeah, and, I mean, I anyone who's listened to previous episodes of this podcast will know that um, I think that the current dietary guidelines upon which most people are basing their diet are um, very much misguided and responsible for a lot of harm in the form mm. of people uh, – intentionally trying to make 
good dietary choices, but simply using incorrect and misguided information that is honestly having quite significant um, and long-lasting uh, negative health consequences, particularly with the development of, of metabolic disease and cardio cardiometabolic disease. So um, mm. how, in terms of now where you're, you're sitting, Jackie, and um, mm. what, what mm. each aspect of what you just mentioned with regard to the saturated fat phobia, the emphasis on carbohydrate intake, where are you sitting now um, with regard to those key um, foundations of diet um, and what are you advising your patients? Yeah, so uh, obviously my views have changed significantly since the days that I studied nutrition and dietetics at uni and in those first years working as a new grad. And that, uh, like many doctors and clinicians who practice in this space, that largely stemmed from our own uh, or my own experience with uh, implementing a lower carbohydrate uh, type of approach to address uh, my own health issues at the time. And for me, um, it was around the time of um, pregnancy and and just in that post-pregnancy period where I uh, I believe my metabolic health was starting to struggle. I gained too much, far too much weight in pregnancy. Um, it was very, very close to having gestational diabetes. Um, had very, you know, fairly large babies. That probably, you know, technically did have GDM myself. And then after delivering my first, um, you know, finding it very difficult to control weight and you know somehow came across the concept of a lower carbohydrate approach. Um, I don't know, just on the internet somehow and um, mainly through hearing the story of Gary Fetke, who's the orthopedic surgeon in Tasmania uh, that you're probably aware of, Max, who um, got into trouble from the DAA or or the the Dietitians Association of Australia uh, complained about him. And having previously been a dietitian myself, that quite piqued my interest of uh, what it was, you know, what was going on for them to complain and to react so strongly to what he was advising. And so I looked into what he was advising and I knew um, with my knowledge of human physiology that it actually made a lot of sense. Um, And that then sent me down a very big rabbit hole that I'm still burrowing through at the moment, looking into, just re-looking at the science of the nutrition advice um, that we've all been taught, uh, those public health nutrition messages, and then that more detail than that um, I, as a dietitian student, learnt. Um, and, yeah, so so it basically prompted me to look more uh, closely, so to scrutinise a bit more that um, the scientific basis of those recommendations and where that came from. And uh, because, you know, when you're a, a 19-year-old dietitian student, you kind of just want to say what needs to be said to pass your, your exams and get through the degree without kind of questioning things too much, um, or at least that was my position then. So to sort of go back, um, you know, years after graduating and relook at all that and um, realise the flaws in what was taught and, and a bit more of the history about it. Um, I don't know, Max, if you've read uh, Nina Teicholz's book, um, Big Fat Surprise. Have you read yeah, that one? Part, parts of it, yeah, yeah. I just found it fascinating um, having been a, a dietitian student before and just going back over that history of um, the guidelines and, and why we are where we are today. Um, and so that that was also a huge eye-opener for me. So the short story is I came to realise that um, on a number of levels that what we were taught didn't make a lot of sense um, and my personal experience with going against those guidelines um, resulted in quite significant um, subjective improvements in managing my own weight but also subjective feelings of better energy, lower IBS symptoms, um, as it turned out, uh, I think an improvement to my own fertility <laughs> later on, you know, with um, uh, third pregnancy. So, yeah, lots of personal benefits for myself. And then um, from there, once I had satisfied myself, it was a safe thing to advise patients and, and uh, knowing, you know, obviously I had that nutrition background, feel quite comfortable discussing nutrition with patients. I was a GP registrar at the time, so so training to be a GP and um, started to incorporate it into my uh, practice at, at, at the practice I was training um, at the time. Um, and yeah, found that a lot of people responded quite well to 
fairly straightforward, uh, like I had a one-page document I would give to patients. Um, obviously, any sort of lifestyle change is challenging for a lot of people, um, but I was quite surprised at the amount of people who would kind of just take that away and run with it, and I'd see them, you know, one or to three months later, and they would just, you know, have lost weight, say that they feel fantastic, um, and seeing all their blood pressure and metabolic markers improve. So that's sort of really... Uh, reaffirmed to me that this way of practicing, of adding this um, nutrition adjunct to my medicine um, that I'm advising people was very safe and, and, and very empowering for my patients. Yeah. And um, I want to emphasize for the listener that the approach or the paradigm shift that we're talking about specifically is reversing this idea, and I would call um, misinformation regarding the harm of consuming animal fat and saturated fat and dietary animal-derived sources of, of cholesterol. Um, that was for many years promulgated as truth and dogma and has subsequently been completely debunked. Um, in addition, we're talking also about the misguided advice that we need to somehow base every single meal on large number of carbohydrates. Um, and again, talking about um, the industry influence on those type of uh, development of those guidelines was there was clear industry um, influence from agricultural industries, particularly in the United States, um, and mm. countries around the world simply just followed the United States in 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 mimicking the in taking upon those guidelines. And um, Gary Fecky, I mean, I've talked to him before about him before in, in this podcast, and as you mentioned, he he was brought before the medical board for inappropriately reversing his patient's diabetes. Um, and another fascinating rabbit hole, which is what his his wife Belinda kind of discovered mm. was that this very very deep-seated influence from religious groups particularly the seventh-day adventist church who have mm. uh, influence through their companies such as sanitarium um mm. and and uncle toby's so um yeah i really like how also that your own health journey was the prompt to to basically change yourself and then change your practice and and again that's been a common theme with with all the the metabolic and low-carb practitioners i've talked to so far is that everyone mm. seems to have had that event or that stimulus to turn the mirror on themselves and then question mm. question a, a whole heap of, of beliefs um have you, you have you looked believe into me, the- i was very skeptical sorry Max, really? i was very skeptical mm. believe me at first mm. i you know kind of had that mainstream view like oh mm. this is you know a fad this is like atkins it's very dangerous look just for a laugh i'm gonna try it out and just mm. see how terrible i feel <laughs> yeah and yeah. was quite surprised to uh, have my own n equals one experiment go the complete opposite direction that i predicted <laughs> yeah and look what i mean what it's it's almost we're in this odd position um as as doctors who are following an evidence-based scientific model who are essentially telling our patients that you've been misled and it's it's almost we're not conspiracy theorists we're simply um analyzing and presenting what is basic biochemistry and physiology um interpreting it in 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 best practice kind of way but it's um it's interesting and fascinating that kind of this is the position that we're in now that we're basically telling people hang on don't do what you've been told for so many decades yeah, and that's exactly what I say to my patients, Max. I, I say to them, you almost have to imagine you were born yesterday from a nutrition knowledge point of view and kind of completely unlearn everything that you thought you knew um, about nutrition because almost everything, you know, even other things, not just the saturated fat story, but, uh, you know, about salt and uh, fibre, you know, there's much more to it than what we've been led to believe. So, yeah, there's, there, there yeah, is. There, there are layers. There are mm-hmm. layers of interwoven and overlapping um pieces of of misinformation as you said the harms of cholesterol salt and its relation to to diet consumption of carbohydrates Mm. red meat Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's a very 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 deep rabbit hole and i I want you to get your idea because you obviously treat a lot of patients from a metabolic point of view um can you define for us in the listener what is metabolic health and what is metabolic ill health and what what do you look for and what are those kind of signs and symptoms of of someone who might not be metabolically healthy absolutely so like everything in medicine we always start with the history so i get a lot of information from hearing people's um i guess dieting and weight history and uh, 
uh, a lot of my patients I see are kind of perimenopausal women. That would probably be my main uh, patient demographic. Um, so you can, you know, get this feel of, of if people have done a lot of the traditional calorie controlled approaches like Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so that is one part of the history I really pluck out. Um, another thing that's interesting is this description of um, uh, that I listen for of, of hangry, so getting uh, hangry in between meals. And I think everyone knows what hangry means, a kind of combination of um, hungry and you get irritable as well, so you get a bit angry. Um, and to me, you know, that flags that blood sugar dysregulation and, and uh, being on a blood sugar roller coaster. So I'm always listening out for that. And then, of course, um, with their medical conditions that they currently might be experiencing. So if there's an element of um, hypertension, I ask them for women, uh, again, who are probably my main population base. I ask them about their pregnancy history, you know, if they've had pregnancies, did they have um, struggles with gestational diabetes, are they known to have PCOS? So they are all um, reflections of, of metabolic dysregulation around that time of um, their reproductive years of life. Uh, and then also an increasing difficulty to control their own weight, um, which says to me this evolving uh, insulin resistance has probably been happening to them through their adult life um, that coincides with the tendency to gain weight around the midsection in particular um, and just finding, you know, they say in my 20s and um, early 30s I could control this I could you know if I gained a few kilos I could easily bring it back down by just you know having a few less biscuits and walking a bit more and all of those measures just don't work for me anymore and and why is that and it's because that much more water is under the bridge they've probably become a bit more insulin resistant and so their body is just less um uh, metabolically flexible to be able to tap into its own um, fat stores because of that dysregulation of um, insulin. And I'm happy to explain any of that further. I know that's probably a little bit technical. Um, no, that's that's but, great. Uh, yeah, let me know if you want me to flesh out any of that. No, that's fantastic. And um, I really like the, this idea or the concept of, of identifying people's emotional, often also quite emotional roller coaster that, that followed the blood sugar um, highs of eating mm. uh, sugary and, and processed food and then the corresponding lows when you get a big dump of insulin in the system yeah. and there's an, an energy crisis and you know the the second foray into the cupboard occurs mm. um to kind of patch up what that that um that that roller coaster and um look that that is someone or that is yeah. a common story of, of people who are basically in a very very carb type glucose metabolism metabolism state um and they're completely unable to access their their, their body fat um and in terms of the the test that w we would see um when when a patient like that comes mm. in, in front of us what mm. what what are your favorite tests for identifying met or uh, metabolic <laughs> dysfunction yeah yeah absolutely so um so, so when I've still got them in the room, I'm obviously checking their blood pressure and their waist to height ratio is an important parameter as well um, as part of the examination and tells me a lot about their metabolic health. Uh, and so then usually I'll order some baseline bloods if they haven't had any all uh, recently. And that's just kind of the standard. I just usually personally start with the standard ones that uh, Medicare will give a rebate for um, in terms of what's recommended in our GP uh, red book to check for, you know, screen for cardiovascular health. So that's um, fasting lipids, fasting blood sugar. Uh, I'll usually also, you know, add a liver function tests and their electrolytes. I do also add a few others that aren't commonly uh, done by most doctors. So I'll often test for fasting insulin as well. Um, and, yeah, you know, the rest, any other tests would be guided by uh, what symptoms the patients are experiencing. So for women, um, often I might check iron if there's some history of tiredness or, you know, fatigue or anything like that, thyroid function occasionally. But those metabolic markers I just mentioned are kind of my core set of things. And, you know, we get a lot of information out of that. And so I normally offer to patients, you know, let's check those ones that Medicare will cover initially, because really it gives us a lot of information um, to start off with. I attract a lot of patients who are very interested in this field and have done a lot of 
you know, reading and listening to YouTube videos and stuff and they might be interested in some of the more advanced markers. Um, so I'm happy to facilitate testing for those as well. But we do get a lot of information out of those um, basic tests that we can organise through Medicare first. So I usually do those um, as bloods initially. Um, another test I do like to do is a DEXA body composition scan to quantify, primarily I'm trying to quantify visceral fat um, with that scan. So as, as something to track over time because uh, uh, most people see me uh, with concerns about weight and they want to lose weight, of course. Uh, and so by capturing that baseline DEXA and their visceral fat, we can watch their visceral fat come down over time, which is the thing that's most closely associated with all the health risks that I'm interested in having them avoid, being your type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, you know, high blood pressure, strokes, etc. Uh, and uh, track that over time and, and, and simultaneously making sure they're not losing too much muscle mass over time because we want uh, people to hold on to their metabolically active muscle tissue. Great. Yeah, that's so, so Those many- are the main ones that are, as, a, as a baseline, mm. Max, and then mm. others Others would be guided by their, you know, well, what I find, you know, if I do more heart tests, that would be on an individual basis. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really like that and I think that the body composition and identifying this high risk visceral adipose tissue is a really, really interesting and, and, and key key point here. Because the to the average patient who have maybe been following the mainstream narratives around obesity for a very long time, they seem to everyone seems to be of the opinion that it's the absolute weight that matters. Um, and simply, you know, eating less and moving more will will, will reduce weight mm. and, and everything is a sequelae downstream of weight loss. But what we're saying as metabolic doctors is it's not only yeah. the absolute BMI and the amount of weight you're carrying, but it's specifically where that weight is and the high-risk weight being that visceral adipose tissue, mm. which is um, going to re- be reflected in things like a raised waist circumference, all the markers of metabolic syndrome, like you mentioned, high blood pressure, um, abnormal dis- uh, atherogenic dyslipidemia, high blood sugar, um, high fasting insulins. Um, and so the DEXA scans are really great, great idea. And I, and I imagine that pe- patients would love to see a before and after um, DEXA scan to really visualize that their progress that they're making. Um, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And we do see, see some really impressive um, progress scans uh, where we can see their visceral fat come down beautifully. And, uh, you know, when they've really embraced the resistance training as well, which is an important piece of the puzzle, um, they're holding on to their muscle tissue nicely. So, yeah, it's quite impressive and rewarding. Fantastic. I, I want to swap um tack a little bit to um pregnancy and you alluded to initially a little bit about your own journey with perhaps um gestational diabetes um and for the listeners gestational diabetes is a state of insulin resistance associated with pregnancy and 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 being pregnant related to to the placenta and all the the hormones of pregnancy um i like to think of it as an early warning sign um Mm -hmm. and a bit of a, a a flag that Hang on, mm. you you might carry you're likely to carry some predisposition for metabolic syndrome later in later in life. Um, w- w- what's your approach to um, maybe mm. to gestational diabetes in general, and specifically maybe trying to identify the women who are high risk before they get pregnant? I must admit, I would feel quite lucky if someone does um, consult me uh, antenatally because um, we know, you know, a significant proportion of pregnancies are unplanned. So mm. I feel in quite a privileged state and, and every now and then people do. Um, and, yes, I mean, when you think about it, um, the, the, the baby's sole nutrition is clearly coming uh, from the mother uh, to change from the tiny little, you know, uh, single-cell embryo which um, quickly grows into a full-term baby over this nine-month gestational period. So it's really quite miraculous when you think about it and everything that goes into that increase um, of that little baby is um, brought in by the mother's intake. So it's just so vitally uh, important. And it's, again, another very confusing area for for people and and including myself, when you're looking at the nutrition advice around pregnancy and because there's a few other things that are layered into that advice. So, for example, I, uh, in in my first pregnancy, was always quite paranoid about listeria risk, um, which is a type of food poisoning that can have quite dire consequences for a pregnant 
ladies and their babies, so increased risk of uh, miscarriage, stillbirth, uh, poor pregnancy outcomes. So uh, my my first pregnancy was an IVF baby, so it was very sort of heart-fought um, um, pregnancy and I was just terrified of doing foot wrong and um, compromising the pregnancy. I, so I was quite worried about listeria, uh, which, you know, looking back now was quite unfounded because it, it, it's very rare. Uh, and when you follow the nutrition guidelines to reduce your risk of listeria, it's really getting rid of a lot of healthy, natural, unprocessed uh, foods or being a bit scared of them. So that's things like, um, you know, eggs that might be slightly undercooked in the yolk, um, uh, salad, you know, green leafy salad vegetables, that sort of thing. So I ended up, and I think this is why I almost gave myself gestational diabetes, um, it's kind of going for like the safe, uh, food safe option of um, quite a lot of hot chips. <laughs> so this is before, um, you know, recognising the extent of how, concerning that was. Um, but it's really quite interesting when you put all it, that into perspective of how common things like macrosomia, so that's a large uh, birth weight baby, uh, gestational diabetes are uh, compared to a poor pregnancy outcome from listeria. It's like um, night and day, uh, the difference in risk and the numbers that we're looking at here. So we really need to put that into perspective. And I just say to patients now to, to be sensible with the food choices, you know, don't um, eat food that is been sitting there for a long time or could be a food poisoning risk. You know, if it's all freshly prepared, it should be fine, but we don't need to have that degree of paranoia about some of those nutrient-dense, healthy, um, you know, quite often animal-based foods um, that, you know, we've sort of had the fear of God put into us about um, from a listeria risk in pregnancy. Yeah, no, um, that's that's a great point. And the the trade-off, there's always a, a trade-off. I mean, people don't really get informed of the the fact that, you know, every decision is, is going to be trading off something. And if you're ignoring or you're um, eschewing very very important um, nutrient dense foods, then um, for the, for the small risk of of a of foodborne illness, then there, there, there's consequences to that. Um, so so if someone is gestationally diabetic. Your mm. would you say was your first line treatment low carbohydrate diet, or how how do you approach that specifically uh, for gestational diabetes? Mm. So. Yes, look, I think you mentioned Lily Nichols before and uh, I think she has fantastic resources on this topic and uh, essentially any uh, young lady that comes in to me who's planning pregnancy or even mentions that, uh, I point them towards Lily Nichols' books and uh, blog uh, website as, as an excellent um, source. And essentially she advocates for a whole unprocessed foods diet or way of eating, if you will. And what that does is that it's delivering all those crucial nutrients in the most bioavailable form that the mother can absorb and um, be used to, uh, you know, as building blocks for the for the um, fetus who is developing. So I always point people towards um, her resources. She has them meticulously referenced. Um, I understand she had an influence on changing some um, uh, dietary guidelines in, in some other, in some Eastern European countries uh, to do with their approach to gestational diabetes. So um, it's, it's more and more uh, being recognised and accepted. Uh, it's quite slow though, um, that happening here in Australia. And you know, you'll still hear that conventional advice of, um, yes, you know, you've been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, so we can see that you haven't tolerated a 75-gram load of glucose. But despite that, we're going to get you, you know, encourage you to have a, a high-carbohydrate <laughs> diet that's far in excess of that test that you did yeah. and then wonder why your blood sugars aren't in control um, yeah. and, and add medicine. So, you know, when it was put like that to me, it was just an absolute epiphany. It's it's, it's just crazy. And um, so, but yeah, but that's still the state of affairs. So I will, you know, encourage um uh, my pregnant patients to have a look at Lily Nichols' resources. Um, I think slowly more and more clinicians, like because obviously ideally 
once they've got that diagnosis, they are a bit more obstetrically complicated and at high risk. So they're going to be under closer scrutiny of their obstetrician and um, uh, midwife team and sometimes might even have some diabetes team involvement, uh, depending how bad it is. So, you know, the more players come into the play, the more conflicting um, nutrition advice they're going to get. So I just literally state my case and, and, um, and you know, offer to monitor them. And obviously they're having their, you know, monitoring um, scans and um, pregnancy examinations and all that sort of stuff through the pregnancy. And in my experience, um, women who have eaten that way have had excellent uh, pregnancy outcomes delivered very healthy babies um, who are thriving and uh, and uh, then eat and, you know, do all the things that little newborn babies should do without any concerns that they haven't had enough carbohydrate during the pregnancy, despite that their mums um, haven't uh, consumed what is recommended and it's uh, worked out very, very well. Yeah. And um, I'd like to make the point that there is no such thing as a, a carbohydrate deficiency in pregnancy. I mean, eat eat high quality sources of carbohydrate like fruit um if you're not metabolically unwell but um the the liver particularly has an ability to synthesize what you need in terms of um of of glucose uh the i'd like you to speak a little bit about um foods particularly foods in pregnancy we 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 alluded to it a little bit before um but the kind of foods that we're thinking about to grow this baby which i like to think about as functionally parasitic upon mum's nutrient stores are the most nutrient dense and bioavailable foods <laughs> so so what what type of foods are you advising or would you recommend someone to be consuming perhaps even before but especially during their pregnancy so at different times uh there'll be other limitations so um anyone you know who's been through pregnancy knows that the morning sickness issue can be problematic and really change what foods you feel like you can stomach. So that's something to keep in mind. But I say to my patients as much as possible to try and focus the, the foundation of what they're eating on natural, whole, unprocessed foods. Um, and, and I discuss some of the nutrients that will be contained in them, which, which I'll cover shortly. But things like um, eggs, meat, fish, chicken, um, uh, veggies, uh, a bit of nuts and seeds, full-fat dairy, uh, I say as much as possible to um, base their intake on that. Uh, yes, you know, a, a bit of fruit is fine um, for, for most pregnant ladies. Uh, and so, yeah, as much as possible eating that way. Um, symptomatically, there's some nutrition strategies we can use to help lessen uh, morning sickness and, and reflux and other um, symptoms they might be experiencing relating to pregnancy, constipation as well. Uh, but basically what eating that way it does, and Lily Nichols' material really brought this to my attention, is that it's uh, really providing the growing baby with those essential nutrients that really many of them can only or mainly come from animal sources as, um, you know, as controversial as that might sound these days. It's kind of just a physiological fact. Um, and that's things like B12, uh, iron, zinc. Um, some of the omega-3 fatty acids like the, you know, DHA, uh, choline is a really interesting one. It's a nutrient I had only relatively recently heard about. Um, it's, it's very vital in, uh, fetal brain development and also placental development. Um, it's thought a lot of pregnancy complications that occur late, you know, in the third trimester of pregnancy are relating to placental dysfunction. Um, so, you know, things like preeclampsia um, as an example. So, you know, having optimal placental function also makes a lot of sense and choline is a nutrient that is really vital for that. And, and a really rich source of choline is uh, egg yolks. And so, you know, I have this joke with my patients that eggs are my favorite superfood. Um, they're just, you know, have so many benefits of, uh, about them. And I tell my patients, it's not possible in my mind to eat too many e eggs. There is no upper limit. Uh, I'm, I'm happy for them to eat as many as they can tolerate. And um, yeah, so eggs are fantastic. But also, 
other animal sources, so like especially like slow-cooked um, meat dishes, you know, where there's the, the, the bone and the connective tissue, which might be slowly cooked as well, then unleashes a lot of those nutrients that are very vital, um, things like glycine and um, uh, collagen and gelatin and, you know, other um, amino acids. Um, zinc so yeah there's a whole there's a whole bunch that I could rattle off so having those uh animal you know healthy animal sources and then uh yeah the 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 other you know supplementary foods you might want to add in you know we've Mm. all heard about uh, folate and um having the green leafy uh veggies as a folate source so so that is um important as well and then a lot of those are also adding in iron and, and iron being a main nutrient of concern in uh, pregnancy. The iron demands are very, very high uh, to grow a new little person. Well, so many uh, pregnant on and non-pregnant women I see are iron deficient. It's endemic. It is so, so common. And um yeah, and I think that's due to a few factors, you know, the, the nature of our diet, but also I think less than optimal gut health and absorbing the iron plays a role, I suspect, as well. So sorry, I'm kind of um, gone off on a bit of a tangent there, uh, Max, but um, does, no, that, did I answer your question? Yeah, no, that's fine and that's great. And I, I really want to emphasise the point that the sources of, of animal food or the, the source of nutrients are predominantly animal food base as you mentioned choline so mm-hmm. eggs eggs are an incredibly rich source of choline and not only for placental development but also for the prevention of neural t- tube defects in addition to to um to uh, folate so it's not only one mm. molecule the folate um that is going to help you prevent neural tube defects it's the constellation of all these nutrients um in in aggregate and of which eggs is is, is such a good um source Meat cooked on the bone Absolutely. is a, another amazing um, source of nutrients. You mentioned uh, glycine. You mentioned all the collagens. Um, there is some evidence, uh, I believe Lily's talked about this, of of these type of amino acids being conditionally essential during pregnancy mm. uh, and yep. for particularly babies growing soft tissue, babies' joints, but also the fact that the uterus um, and the placenta is developing so rapidly, so quickly. I mean, it's like you're growing a, a, a new liver in, you know, a, in a matter of mm. months. So the fact that um, you can get by if you don't eat these foods, but the, the outcome in my mind is going to be nowhere near as optimal if you um, I- include some of these foods. I-, I want you to talk a little bit um, about liver because liver mm. is, um, in my estima- estimation, the optimal human food in that it contains mm. the absolute full spectrum of fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, K, a particularly good source of K2. Um, as well as all the B, B vitamins and minerals like zinc, heme iron, um, particularly those two. So w- what, what's your opinion on liver and what's your advice on consumption of liver during pregnancy? Yeah, liver is an interesting one. Uh, it's it's not a commonly consumed food in our culture, unfortunately. It has kind of, you know, probably was back in the day, but has fallen a bit of the wayside a lot of people are a little bit queasy at the thought of consuming organ meat so it's definitely less culturally acceptable but from a pure nutrition point of view even in my kind of 90s based um, nutrition degree it was always at the top of the list as the most um, richest source of, of all the b vitamins and, and most of the vitamins that we learned about at the time so um, there, there has been some concern voiced about pregnant ladies eating liver for risk of vitamin A toxicity. So as you said, Max, um, liver is a very rich source of some of those fat-soluble vitamins and the concern is with getting too many of those is that we can develop a, a toxicity in the system. But really when when you um, look at that in a bit more depth, uh, those studies uh, and sorry just um, touching on with vitamin A in particular uh, toxic levels have been you know linked to um, fetal malformations and quite serious um, consequences so it, it is serious stuff that we're talking about here but those studies were linking back to synthetic vitamin A in supplemental form and um, as you say, you know, natural whole foods they've got the right combination of nutrients in the right form and they work together synergistically um, to counter some of the, you know, 
potential negative effects of too much uh, vitamin A from having liver, but it would be very, very hard to consume the amount of liver that there would be concern of vitamin A toxicity. And we know from the studies that vitamin A deficiency is actually far more common in pregnant ladies. So it's a bit of a disproportionate concern about consuming liver and a concern for vitamin A toxicity. Um, I have never heard of this happening in practice, and I think primarily is because not that many people consume liver. But because of the nature of my practice, I do tend to attract patients who have already an interest in that area and ask me about liver. And um, quite happy, you know, you can get quite significant benefits from just quite modest amounts of um, liver included in the diet. So somewhere in the realm of about 80 or so grams uh, per week. And if you are a little bit queasy at the thought or the taste of um, liver, there's ways you can disguise it, uh, you know, add it up in with muscle meat mince in a meatball and if it's across you know a few meatballs you, you won't need, even notice it but it is definitely a very uh, important superfood and uh, I agree you know uh, you know one of the optimal human foods to have thanks Jackie yeah I, I, thank you for that explanation that was very good and very comprehensive and again it's harkening back to the theme that we have of whenever you are omitting something from the diet there's always going to be consequences and there's always trade-offs. So, yeah, you, you, you might be worried about um, perhaps vitamin A toxicity. And as you said, you should be worried if you're consuming large amounts of synthetic retinol, not in the context of mm. real food. Um, but if you decide mm. to omit liver for that reason, then you, you have to deal with or the, the possibility that you are not getting a, an optimal source of, of so many um, important nutrients. And, and look, I would add... Um, um, the sources of uh, liver that are commonly available to people in Australia, which are ruminant liver, cow, beef liver, and, and lamb liver, they are not on the same order of magnitude of vitamin A concentration as the carnival livers, such as um, you know polar bear or you know wolf liver, <laughs> yeah. that, that that were you know have been associated yeah. with it, these stories of, of of vitamin A toxicity in in Arctic travelers and and, and the like. So mm. I think. Helping people realize that liver is is a very very important food um, to the pregnant period. I think mm. that's part of this re-education and helping people access this vitality and this the, the health that that they kind of deserve and that their their ancestors would have definitely um, been been accessing. Um, thank you again for mm. that great summary. I just want to pivot now to uh, vegetarianism, and you made the comment which I love, and it's very um, it's it's descriptive. It's unfortunate, but it's it's bluntly descriptive, which is that. Uh, iron deficiency is endemic in um, the female Australian population, and I imagine around the world, in other Western countries, it's it's similar. Um, talk to mm. me about this. Why is it so common? Um, what are the causes? Yeah, well, like I said, I think there's probably a number of causes. Um, so, iron is a uh, an element that you know is vitally important for a number of, of health processes uh, and I suspect you know for a lot of uh, people they probably started life <laughs> possibly in a quite a relatively iron deficient state um, so they might have been starting from that initially uh, we know it's very very common for children uh, and babies to have iron deficiency um, when they develop symptoms and we might actually check it um, part of that, I think, is due to too much, um, you know, sometimes dairy consumption. Uh, people consume too much calcium in, in dairy that can compete with iron absorption, plus the demands of growth of the child uh, mean that they need more iron um, and, and uh, that can manifest with a number of physical symptoms. Um, so I think there's that. Um, I think also the misguided public health nutrition advice and, and sort of saying to limit meat and and this advice is kind of becoming even more pronounced of, of the amounts of meat that are being advocated for by particularly some of the plant-based uh, promoting groups um, which who are quite powerful um, they're really advocating for these really small amounts of meat and so a lot of people 
including doctors, will just listen to that advice at face value and be, you know, you're hearing more these days about meat-free Mondays and all this sort of stuff. So this really active campaign to actually get people to reduce their meat consumption as as if meat is the culprit for all of our woes, um, which we know that it's not. Um, so, you know, and I mentioned before, I think um, poor gut health has an impact as well. Um, a lot of patients suffer with IBS symptoms and, and I think a lot of that relates to a dysbiosis in the gut um, in that, that they've got the wrong overgrowth of the wrong bacteria and it's inhibiting optimal um, absorption of nutrients. Um, yeah, there's probably at least half a dozen factors that contribute to why so many people are iron deficient. Um, the classic symptoms people will get are um, tiredness, uh, but it doesn't always manifest like that. And sometimes, um, you know, people might even be, and this actually happened to me uh, in pregnancy, more at the other end, they sort of feel like they have a lot of energy, but um, but poor quality sleep. Um, sometimes people can get, uh, you know, restless legs, that sort of thing with iron deficiency as well. So it's not always the fatigue as, as the symptom, although that is a very, very common one. Um, but yeah, so, so it's, it's definitely a, a very common nutrient to be found low, uh, and with associated consequences. So, you know, always I'm trying to encourage people to eat the rich sources, um, in their diet to try and bolster those up. But sometimes that in and of itself isn't enough to move the needle sufficiently to improve their iron stores. And sometimes I will advocate for some iron supplementation or even sometimes an iron infusion just to bolster those levels. And, and iron deficiency anemia, as you mentioned, is associated with a, a range of um, undesirable consequences. Um, postpartum depression is one of them. And the point that you made about children you know having a lifelong iron deficiency well there would definitely be consequences for development of intelligence uh, in, in those children mm. um, and not reaching a, a, their genetic potential for intelligence i i it, it's my belief i, I really like your, your breakdown of why you think so many people women today are iron deficient i think that the mainstream narratives have a lot to answer for um not mm. only the guidelines but also uh, per- pervasive and persistent messaging about the benefit of going plant-based for the planet health, for your health. Mm. And it's a very, very thin, it's a thin layer that you have to pull back. It's a very thin curtain that you have to pull back um, once you delve into the, the research and the science to realise that it's not really based on any solid foundation of science or, or truth. Um, but the consequences are that, that so many people are iron deficient and, and suffering because of it. Uh, mm. I also want to make the point that no matter how much people might like to think that they don't need to eat red meat. They're, the fact is that the Homo sapiens genetically evolved, our uh, genetic code and our evolved demand for uh, animal-derived heme iron is undeniable and, and, and unrefutable. Mm. So whether or not um, you think you need it, um, there's 300,000, 500,000 years of, of evolution that um, has a, a deep-seated uh, need and, and demand for that type of food. And many people might not mm. even know how well they could feel or, or how what their potential is for, for thriving in their daily life um, if they've never um, actually eaten something like um, a liver, perhaps. Um, not uncommon mm. to hear stories of people, you know, feeling quite almost high uh, when they first taste a piece of liver because they're, they're, the amount of nutrient density that, that they're being suddenly uh, given is, is quite a novel for, for their body. So um mm. yeah thank thank you for for that that breakdown and w- would you w- what other approach would you say to someone who perhaps has been vegetarian for a long time um and, and maybe not not or reluctant to start eating animal foods what's your approach to mm. that patient and and what would you encourage them maybe in terms of order of introduction of foods Yeah look there's a lot of uh, layers of when someone decides to be a vegetarian or a vegan and it's not always relating to just you know their perception of what is nutritionally the best thing as you alluded to max there's this whole narrative of um, you know planetary health and environmental health and this perception which i don't believe is correct that eating vegan or vegetarian is is better for the planet i think there's a pretty decent case that that's actually opposite to the truth um so you do have to tread a bit carefully because 
uh, people can be almost religiously wed to their dietary um, choice. So I'm not out to, you know, get into fights with people. And look, the fact is some people do do okay on vegetarian diets if that's the way they choose to eat. So look, I'm not going to insist that everyone is a carnivore <laughs> um, and, and you've got to do what suits you and your cultural background and your family and all that sort of stuff. So I certainly accept that. I don't think um, being dictative or um, or, or dogmatic is helpful at all. Uh, I just try and keep it quite factual. Um, you know, ad- advance the um, you know some of the material that we've just discussed about the nutrient density and bioavailability of animal-based foods, uh, and that uh, especially you know if, if they're purchased from a um, reputable, responsible, um, you know, farming type of environment. There's, um, you know, no no need to have concerns about, you know, animal cruelty. I mean, there's so many different layers that come in with the whole vegetarian thing. And, you know, I'm... um, I'm a mainstream GP and so I'm always a bit limited with time. So I sometimes just don't even go down into some of those rabbit holes, um, unfortunately, due to lack of time. And I just might um, put forward a few little snippets of information. Sometimes that's enough, though, to get the, you know, we can, I can almost see the cogs turning in the patient's mind uh, when I present some of this information. And I know of many stories of vegetarians and vegans who say, I just like, absolutely craved a steak (laughs) so I ate one and I felt so much better or they've started to include they've just like almost subconsciously found themselves drawn to having more of these animal foods and I just think it's their body crying out for that um, sort of nutrition so yeah look it really depends on their background of why they choose to be vegan or vegetarian and if there's a lot of um, you know ideology there or like religiousness uh, just kind of don't really open that can of worms a lot to be honest uh, and just keep it quite scientific and physiological and this is how the body uses nutrients and, and the bioavailability of nutrients and that sort of stuff just just to kind of put it to uh, people and sometimes I'll try and you know um, compromise in a way and sort of see if they would be open to including some eggs um, or I, I've heard um uh there's a thought that eating oysters can be less offensive to um vegetarians because there's no um something to do with the anatomy yeah there's there's, there's sentience Uh, in the nervous system yeah i've I've heard that as well yeah yeah something like that i've forgotten the detail but um Yeah. yeah so just trying to use any sort of opening to encourage well could this be a way to um include some of these more nutrient dense foods and um and i just offer them to to try it out see how they feel and because, you know, everyone eats every day and people are often happy to do their own experiment on um, food and just see how they feel and it keeps it very objective and and they've got to weigh that up uh, themselves about how that might fit in then with their other beliefs and um, yeah. what they want to do. But I think it is important to keep that discussion open about, um, you know, the environmental impacts or the um, concern about some of the, you know, going really too far down the plant-based rabbit hole and the... Yeah its environmental impacts so yeah, yeah. balance yeah. to scuff and need it yeah yeah well well said well said jackie that's um that's great advice and um, so the the just to finish up i i i just wanted to get your thoughts on um another common condition or that, that you might see in terms of particularly on among female patients which is um irregular periods what's your how commonly do you see that um and, and how do you think about it and, and what do you think the consequences are in terms of um, health and, and perhaps pregnancy as well. So irregular periods say to me that there's something, you know, malfunctioning in the, um, you know, the, the the hormonal cycle or the female reproductive cycle. And because uh, as we know, you know, the normal female cycle is generally 28 day plus or minus a few days. Um, so if there's this history of you know, essentially what would be PCOS or polycystic ovary type symptoms, um, one of which is irregular periods or some cycles that are very, very long. So um, the person might, you know, go two or three sometimes months without any period at all and then it'd be quite heavy. Then they might have a short period. So, excuse me, that cycle of really significant periods that are all over the shop plus um, some other elements of examining them and getting an idea of their history. So the classic um, example is 
you know, a, a young female who has a bit of a family history of type 2 diabetes, they have irregular periods, they struggle with acne, they struggle with their weight and particularly weight gain around the midsection. Um, there's a pretty good case that uh, PCOS is um, really insulin resistance of the ovaries um, and there's a very good book that covers that in depth by um, Dr. Jason Fung and a uh, Nadia of something or other um, who you know goes through that uh, in, in depth about PCOS and insulin resistance and it really you know studies have quite closely linked uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome with uh, developing type 2 diabetes and other metabolic um, significant diseases down the track later on in life. And um, like you said, Max, it is a little bit of a kind of a canary in the coal mine, a sort of an early sign um, when someone is young um, that there is that tendency to be insulin resistant. But there are some measures that we can put in place to really improve that. Um, and, and the thing I learned about insulin, uh, sorry, polycystic ovarian syndrome is that uh, it doesn't always follow the classic, um, you know, criteria that we're taught. And sometimes there isn't much evidence of, say, if we do an ultrasound on the person, um, you know, many cysts in the ovaries, but I will still have a high index of suspicion that there's an element of PCOS at play um, and we'll just manage it kind of similarly as if it was PCOS in that the cornerstone of that being a um, diet low in refined carbohydrates and other measures to try and improve that insulin resistance. So, you know, not snacking all the time, you know, consolidating their meal times to allow their insulin to come down in between eating, um, yeah, the re reduced refined carbohydrates, like I said, um, and other um, factors in lifestyle that can help insulin sensitivity as well. So exercise, stress management, um, optimizing sleep, all those things as well. Yeah, great. And one more question for you is one of fasting, which is quite a common uh, intervention that, and tool that we use for reversing metabolic disease and is very effective in mm. certain people, particularly men. What is your opinion mm. on fasting in women, both, both premenopausal and, and maybe peri and postmenopausal? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's I definitely have a very individualized approach with it. So for pretty much everyone, I'm quite happy for them to do something like a 16-8 fast, um, you know, pretty much most days of the week. Uh, there's some people I do think need to be a bit careful with not overdoing the fasting. And I've seen some, um, I guess, less than op uh, ideal situations where someone might be over fasting in amongst a lifestyle that has a lot of other stresses because at the end of the day, while fasting is helpful in that it can reduce insulin and um, help metabolic health, there is a point of diminishing returns and um, that point is very individual uh, in my experience. And some people who have a lot of stress in their lives, their sleep might be terrible. If they overdo the fasting, I've actually seen it can be detrimental. They might start to lose some muscle tissue um, and have other uh, bad consequences. Sometimes some of their, you know, blood sugars, fasting blood sugars and stuff go up. So it gets quite complex and, and not what you would always expect to see. And, and I think part of that is a stress response. But, um, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think fasting is a, like some of the extended fasts are better tolerated probably in general by uh, men usually. It's not to say women should never, ever do it, but it really depends on the context and, what you're eating to break the fast because you want that to be very nutrient-dense, not just break it with um, anything. Um, make sure it's really well planned out to then re replenish those cells that have been, um, you know, gone into that autophagy state. Um, we want to, you know, it makes sense to me to be giving them the best nutrients to, you know, replenish those cells and when we do go to eat. So if it's done carefully, um, I think it can be a helpful adjunct and certainly it helps with some of my peri-postmenopausal ladies to help them get off a weight plateau, um, adding in some fasting. So, yeah, I definitely use it as a tool. I'm just a bit discerning that I don't sort of recommend everyone does a seven-day fast yeah, without no, some consideration. And, yeah, I, I think that's that's great advice and, and I really like that idea of, of being very very vigilant and careful about stacking these these type of stresses because fasting is a form of hormetic stressor 
um, that in the right situation is intensely beneficial um, and regenerative to the organism. But as you said, if you're layering a fast um, or even a time-restricted eat, uh, eat, eating period, like you mentioned, of 16, 8 hours, if you're layering that on top of um, emotional stress or, or job stress um, and as well as maybe coffee overconsumption, or all these other factors, then it would be a very quite quite possibly yet yeah, make a, a a hormonal wrecking ball, and you might end up having the the the, un, the reverse uh, of inte- of the intended initial consequence. So, um, yeah, thank thanks for laying that out. That's a that's great advice. And mm. um, so that's a great great place to to leave it. And um, do you have anywhere or any handoffs that you can give people about your social media or how they can get in touch with you if they they want to consult with you? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I didn't prepare anything, uh, but people are welcome to consult our practice. Um, we, we've got a pretty good team now of clinicians. Um, so I'm, um, I serve a role as a GP. I also talk to people a bit about nutrition given my background, but we do also have our own in-house dietitian that I use quite heavily as well just to free my time up a bit and uh, I let her go into a lot more depth and kind of troubleshooting for the individual. Um, so people are very, very welcome to consult with our practice. Um, it's called Sante Medical, S-A-N-T-E. Uh, medical and we're a GP practice in Paddington in Brisbane. Um, so we, you know, see people locally, but we can also telehealth as well. Um, these days, post COVID, you know, we have a bit more access to telehealth. Um, our dietitian can telehealth and we have a functional medicine doctor as well, which I find very handy. Um, I'm conventionally trained as a GP, but I attract a lot of patients that have an interest in some of the kind of more functional related stuff. So it works in quite well when I reach the edge of my um, knowledge and, and um, ways that I can help people that I can refer them to our functional doctor. So we have quite a few bases covered to help improve people's health and metabolic health. And we always, both myself and our functional doctor, have the uh, paradigm that it's food and lifestyle first, like even in the functional space, you know, all the expensive tests and supplements aren't going to make that much difference if we don't have that foundation correct. And so we put a lot of our energy into getting that right, coaching people through, um, you know, lifestyle changes with our dietitian, And then if we need to, we can layer in, you know, things like medication, a bit more in-depth interventions, more the in-depth functional medicine testing, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, people, welcome to consult with us um, at any time. We're welcoming new patients. (laughs) Great. Well, fantastic. So thank you very much, Jackie, for your time and for sharing all your, your knowledge with the listeners. Pleasure. Thank you for having me, Max. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.